I don't know. This is an exciting podcast about traveling to tropical islands. And we're talking about employee scorecards. Why? <laughs> hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Happy Thursday morning, boss man. Here we are on video again. Hmm. I'm just going to wear the same thing for every single podcast. That way, I'm not being judged for my repetitiveness. You know, in middle school, it was really important sort of uh, how far away your clothes were spaced. This was mm-hmm. like a, essentially a sign of wealth. And if you were to, to repeat Correct. within a 10-day period, it means that your family's on the bricks. And I don't want to have to live up to that standard here at the podcast. That's why we started a lifestyle business. So I'm just going to go Zuckerberg on this whole thing and wear a hoodie every single time. You are correct about that happening in middle school. That being said, I actually thought about what I was going to wear today. And here I am. (laughs) And this is the best I could do. So regardless of my financial situation, not all problems can be solved with money. We got a mailbag episode today. But at the top, I want to talk about something that's been really important in our business. Ian, we talked about last year, the theme of the year was back to basics. This year, and this is sort of an overall business theme. You know, we did close to $2 million in revenue last year. And we're thinking about how to take it to the next level in the business. And we were saying, well, this year, the theme is alignment. Let me say in practical terms, when you're finding alignment with another individual or with a group of people, sometimes you can come to a conversation and you can say stuff. You can say some stuff. Let's grow the podcast. Let's uh, improve our margins on this product. Let's try out this really cool idea that I have. It looks a little something like this. And you all stand around and you talk about it for 15 minutes. Ready, break, you hang up the Zoom call and everybody goes and does that. But at a certain point, what we were finding is that those things would start to break down. That you'd go to the call and then you come back and like people don't really do the things you thought you talked about. And then when you dig in a little bit, you're actually talking about different things. And then when I say alignment, you don't actually think the same thing that I'm thinking when I say alignment. And so not only does it dig to the deepest ideas of communications with one-on-one, but it's further complicated by sometimes you have five, six, seven, eight, 10 plus people in a call. And now they all have different ideas of what alignment means when I say the word alignment. And the problem is, is like all this can be fine to a certain point, but when you're making major capital expenses and overhead, and when you're really trying to move the ball forward, it really behooves everyone to like dig in and to literally get on the same page. And that is what alignment is all about. So that same page can look like a lot of different things, many of which we're going to talk about this year on the podcast. We're going to talk about things like organizational charts. We're going to talk about strategic operating documents. We're going to talk about things like quarterly reviews and all these kinds of metaphorical or quite literal same pages. But today we want to talk about something called the scorecard The scorecard is a simple document with a lot of these things, Ian. Sometimes you're forced to ask yourself, like, if it's so simple, why don't we do it? And that's something I think we can reflect on a little bit. But 
maybe if I could have a moment, talk about what a scorecard is, what it isn't, and how they can go to work in your business. So the promise of a scorecard is essentially this, and I'll read it from our template that's going to be available for download. So if you believe in the promise of the scorecard, like Ian and I do, which is essentially a way for you to get on the same page with each individual team member, then you can download our template. Uh, Just click on your phone or head on over to tropicalmba.com. We'll have a scorecard template for everybody. So here's our intro text. It reads, how scorecards can improve your hiring and management. A scorecard clearly communicates job expectations, quarterly goals, projects, the methods and means for achieving them. Scorecards are a way to provide regular and balanced feedback to team members. They should have a clear understanding of what's expected from them. Importantly, a scorecard is not a job post. A job post is just marketing. It helps you to bring in the ideal candidate, but the real core of a job performance is found in the scorecard. So I'm going to zorb out of our write-up here just for a moment to say that one of our favorite books on hiring, Who, says scorecards become the blueprint that links the theory of strategy to the reality of execution. Scorecards translate your business plans into roll-by-roll outcomes and create alignment among your team, and they unify your culture and ensure people understand your expectations. No wonder they are such powerful management tools. Key things to remember with scorecards, and we're going to talk about this after. Fill out a scorecard before you hire, number one. Number two, never again be, quote, on the wrong page with a team member. Number three, create a standard for growth when performance is good or termination or improvement plans when performance is poor. Did you ever have that feeling when you're like, I kind of feel like this person should be, I don't know, reduce their role in this company, but I haven't even broached that conversation. I don't know how to get their scorecards your way. The second page is the actual scorecard itself, which we'll walk through in a bit. But now that I've gotten the whole preamble out here, Ian, I'm wondering if you could take us into your personal experience a little bit and sort of touch base with, I don't know, this is an exciting podcast about traveling to tropical islands and we're talking about employee scorecards. Why? <laughs> so when you get off the plane from the tropical island, you don't have 300 emails. It's clear Ooh. what the job responsibilities are. Nice pickup. <laughs> We've implemented this scorecard with our entire team now. And going through DC Scale, which is basically, we talked a bit about it on this show, but it's basically business growth and strategies for founders. We have 20 people in our first cohort here that we're running through this first quarter, Dan. And we started to roll out the scorecards in these meetings as well. And I think everybody is like really excited about this, like even more so than a lot of the things that we've been talking about, because it really puts structure around like the organization and the people in the organization. So I think that this like one document, if there was only going to be one document that you install in your company, especially if, if you have employees, like this would be the one. That's interesting. Yeah. What's it like before you have a scorecard and after? I mean, well, we can talk about our experience in our organization. So like you say things in the, when you don't have a scorecard, you say things like this, like, what is this person doing? What are they working on? What are the projects? What are the goals? How much should we pay them? Well, what did they do? It's like this whole ambiguous conversation around their role, their compensation and their results. And the scorecard basically solves a lot of those problems and it solves them for your organization as a whole too, not just the individual, but it basically brings clarity around 
responsibilities, duties, roles, and tasks, essentially. If you basically like put DC scale, and by the way, DC scale is just our version of like traction, which is a version of scaling up, which is a version of a lot of business accelerator growth kinds of things you can employ in your business. One of the key things you're going to do if you sign up for one of these programs and like write the big check and show up to the business coach is they're going to be like, what's your 10-year vision, man? Tell me how you're going to be Steve Jobs or whatever. They're going to be like, tell me your 10-year thing. Then you're going to break it down to three years. Then you're going to break it down to one year. And then it's going to all of a sudden have your products in there. And it's going to be up into the, everything's going to be up into the right, I guarantee you, the next year. And then it's going to go down to your quarterly things. And then you're going to start saying things like rocks and you start getting nerdy. And the scorecard is really how that ends up on the desk of every individual that's in your company. And so what I like about what you're saying is basically, if you want to hack this whole system, just forget about all like the up and to the right talk and just get the scorecard out and be like, look, there's five people that work in this company. There's 90 days in this quarter. What is our agreement? You're responsible for that forward-looking vision as the owner, as the CEO. Now you need to translate it to the desk of the person that works for you. It's important because it's a collaborative process. So now you've got the person on the other side of the Zoom call saying, I agree. I like your vision. I'm vibing with it or I don't. I think that that's a reasonable thing. Let's proceed. Now we've got a place to basically say, this is what your job is. It's super clarified. You are going up and to the right the same way my projections are, which means you're going to get promoted. Or, hey, guess what? 90 days later, we check in, which is an important scorecard concept. You check in every quarter. You are no longer fulfilling any of this jam. So like, hey, my bad. Sorry for my big visions, but we're not a good fit. Or they're terrible. They said they could do it. They can't do it. Now they need to go. I mean, one of the great things about a scorecard, Ian, is that they are insurance policies against keeping bad team members too long. It's an insurance policy against that. And it's also an insurance policy about not having clear objectives and making progress in your organization. So it's like a way to keep even yourself as the owner accountable through other people that you're working towards your three or five-year goal or 10-year goal. So what you're saying before, I think is true. And it's really important. Basically, in many of these systems, including ours, like you walk your way backwards from like a big goal. And then it basically gets distilled into quarterly goals. But what's really important there, I think, is the buy-in from the team. So you have to first kind of articulate to people, I think, before you even roll out these scorecards, because it can be kind of abrupt. I'm thinking about like uh, trying to get a jacket on my toddler in the winter. It's not happening. It's like, why should I? I'm not cold. I don't need it. I won't be cold. And then you get out there and you're like, dude, I told you. And you're like, no, you're not. I know I'm still not cold. So you have to walk people through, I think, like the reasoning for why these scorecards are important, not just for them, but for the organization. We didn't start with the scorecards, Dan. We started with like the objective of the organization, which was to help founders of six and seven and even eight-figure businesses. Yeah, sometimes eight, yeah. Yeah, grow. And so we started with this kind of new mission statement for our organization in the last year. And then we've kind of walked it back to these individual scorecards. Let's dig into that toddler thing where it's all arms and protest. I actually think if I had, in general, I think the founders would protest this more than the team members, which is weird. Sometimes it sounds like, oh, the scorecard is going to be rigid or weird or corporate, right? But I'll tell you what, 
your team members probably feel like they don't get the opportunity to talk about their existential situation and your company enough. So one of the cool parts about the scorecard is you get to define the title. You get to define the mission for the role. One of the things that we added on our scorecard, you're only going to find at the proprietary scorecard you'll find here at the TMBA. Let's do it together. The professional trajectory. It's an opportunity for your team member to say, hey, how am I going to grow my career in this quarter too? What do these tasks I'm doing for the company have to say about my career? Maybe I can build my sales skill set this quarter. And so now there's a professional attachment that's broader goal than simply a KPI, for example. We talk about their one big innovation or rock or project or however you want to describe that for the quarter. And we talk about the time frame in which they're going to be evaluated. Team members typically, they want to know that they're in an engaged organization, that their work contributes to the goals that the organization has, and they want to know how they're doing and how their career is doing. And so scorecards are a fun, easy way to like kind of win-win because it doesn't take that long to build a scorecard. In fact, I brought on two contractors today and I built their scorecards in less than half an hour. You know, got on the phone with them, walked them through the scorecard, figured out what the compensation is going to be. And now, bam, that's like a company document that we have for the future. And we've agreed upon what the deliverables are going to be for what we're going to pay them. Well, you bring up a couple of interesting points. A couple that I'll disagree with you on in that it's easy. I actually think it's not easy, especially at first. We've had like several versions of the scorecard, Dan, as you know, because um, you've built many of them. So the one that we're basically presenting to you guys today, this is like on version like five or six. And this is like a combination of like a bunch of different books and methods and like what's working for us in our organization. So it was relatively hard for us to come up with this format. And I bet it's going to change at least one or two more times through the end of the year, like as we see it in practice. But like right now, it's working pretty well. The other thing is um, that you mentioned that I think is interesting that comes up a lot in DC scale, which is should I be giving this to my contractors, like non-full-time people? And I think the answer is always yes. Because like what you outlined is essentially true for everyone, which is basically everyone wants to know how they're doing within an organization. They want to be able to kind of measure their success. The less definition there is around a role and like things to be done and like results, I think the worse it is for everybody. So the answer is like, should you be rolling this out to part-time people? Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the cool things was, is like when we finished those scorecards, now I'm able to take all the expectations and communicate them right away to the team in the same format that they were communicated to your contractor. So it's like, here's the new contractor, here's their role. And here's what that role looks like in 250 words. Like here's where the clear handoffs are, the deliverables, the mission, all that. The whole team gets to understand like basically how they interface with this person that you're bringing in. So let's go through it really quick because it isn't as complicated, I think, as we're making it seem to be. We have a document here. We're just (laughs) talking a lot of theory behind like the reason why you should implement it and the kind of impact that it can have on your business. But basically, it's relatively simple. So at the top, there's just a title measurable accountabilities. Basically, your outputs are your KPIs. So these are the end goals of what you would like to accomplish in the quarter. And the KPIs or the goals, generally speaking, these things are fixed. We need to improve revenue by 20%, or we want to bring 10% more people to this event. In our case, it could be something like um, Juntos. So basically, we have Juntos the third Thursday of the month in our organization. And this is where people from around the world gather 
to meet up with other DCers. And historically speaking, before COVID, we had pretty good attendance. And then COVID hit, kind of everything slowed down. And then now we're trying to kind of rethink this product. And part of the problem with that product in the past is that you had to have a host to have a Junto. So basically someone in Austin had to raise their hand and say like, I want to be a Junto host in Austin. And that essentially is our best guess as to why we're having less of these is because people basically have to self-identify to host the events. So our thought or our theory was, what if we eliminate hosts? So getting back to the outputs, basically we want to increase Junto attendance by let's say 20%. Our input or activities would be to eliminate the Junto hosts. So the inputs or the activities that lead to the outputs are your best guesses on how to get there. And there could be many of these best guesses. For us, this is just the one that we're testing right now. So you can imagine a, a few other, Dan. So this is basically the relationship though of how the outputs, the KPIs, and the inputs work. Is your inputs are your best guesses. And I would expect those to even change within the quarter sometimes. But your outputs are ultimately leading towards your bigger goals. So those are less movable. First off, I'm kind of a KPI hater. I think people typically pick KPIs that are just like too big, like revenue. So if you haven't clicked through your phone yet to see what Ian's talking about, there's essentially three key fields we're talking about here. At the top, there's KPIs, which are goals. Another way of saying goals, right? Key progress indicators. Those are going to be numbers. Those are going to be things like close six new deals this quarter. Or you could refine that, you know, you could say, as you grow here, you could say, close six new deals with these qualities this quarter, right? They have to have a bit of a certain quality standard. Okay. We're talking about maybe a business development or a salesperson scorecard. This typically the easiest one is to create. By the way, some discussion about whether you should even do this for your developers. So we can maybe round out the conversation with that. Easiest to do it with salespeople for obvious reasons, I think, because they have clear goals, right? We're going to cut six new deals. They're going to be at this contract value, they're going to be with this kind of client, bam. Great. That's the goal that you and your team member have agreed to. Why? Because that's where you need to be at the quarter to meet the goals that you set out for your projections of the year. That's going to get you to a three-year goal. That's going to help you be Steve Jobs in 10 years. So that's how this stuff's all coming together. You're making this agreement now with the salesperson to say, you got to be a part of this Steve Jobs plan. And here's how you're going to do it. You're going to cut six new deals this quarter. Well, that can be sort of disempowering because maybe they're new. Well, maybe they cut only one new deal last quarter. And it's sort of like, well, how do I do that? That's where the inputs and the activities come from, which I prefer to think of as habits. And this is, to me, where the really interesting action comes from. You might even call them levers. What are the levers that this person can pull on in the quarter to get to the goal that you need to hit? And this is where you hypothesize about levers. One might mean that you need to talk to X number of good prospects every day or every week. And that number, based on your conversion rate, might look really high. It's like, man, I have to have 20 conversations a week to get to six deals in the quarter. Now I'm scratching my head thinking, how am I going to get there? And that's the kind of productive conversation you want to have with your team member. You want to help to identify key habits that you guys trust or levers that are going to lead to those six deals. And the idea is, and this is, comes directly from a book we did an interview on last year called Working Backwards. Jeff Bezos' right-hand man 
is the relationship between what you're doing on the input side should get refined in terms of your outputs as your company grows in sophistication. And as you take on bigger challenges, sometimes they're going to disconnect again. And, you know, we often talk about concepts like conversion rate and opt-in rate to sales rate to upsell rate. These are typically like systems that are pretty well refined. And a lot of times in our businesses, we're talking about much looser connections. So something to consider, but these relationships are really, really interesting. Finally, the third column is going to be something we're calling countervailing metrics. The problem with this whole exercise is sometimes you can lose sight of the mission of the company while you're just trying to optimize for numbers. So countervailing metrics is a little bit of like salt in the mix and basically saying, yo, you can't violate these sorts of things in order to meet your numbers. For example, like everybody knows, like let's say in e-commerce, like oh, I want to sell a million dollars this next year. Well, you could sell your product at 50% off. Exactly. It would completely blow out your list. Like you can't do that. So that's the idea of countervailing metrics is like we are going to achieve the above without violating either these principles or these rules that we have in the organization. I know what it feels like to show up to a job board and understand that whatever price you're going to pay and whatever amount of time you're going to spend writing that job ad, that's just a fraction of the whole deal. Hiring takes a ton of time and money, especially if you get it wrong. That's why in 2023, we've created a more affordable way for you to work directly with our experienced recruiters to help you get the result and the hire you're seeking. Check out our new service. It's called Guided Hire, and it starts at just $14.97. With Guided Hire, an experienced team member on our team will help you determine a hiring strategy and promote to the best candidates, even if they're not on our own job board. Dynamite Jobs will help you track them down and hand deliver and filter for you only the very best applications. Our recruiters are executing this best in class strategy all day, every day with great results. In fact, last year, we made over 100 direct hires. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Let me just read some of these. Our recent hire, senior designer in Colorado, a full stack engineer in Kosovo, technical support in Hungary, technical project manager in Dominican Republic, all kinds of jobs, all kinds of locations, all kinds of salaries. Check out our team at remotefirstrecruiting.com. We can help run the strategy for you and guide you to the result you seek. So save time, get expert support, and execute a world-class hiring strategy for every single hire. Head on over to Remote First Recruiting. Dot com and give the team a call. One of the things I want to mention is just the little bit of salt with metrics in general. I mean, for me, how good are KPIs is an open and ongoing conversation. It just depends on your organization. If you have a really refined sales process, this could be, quote, the Bible, right? Sell this many cars this month or else you're not a good salesperson at this car lot. Fair enough. In startups, sometimes these things are a little bit more of a moving target. You might think for a few quarters that, hey, we're really optimizing for total active users this month. And then you realize that that can have a detrimental effect to have too high of a percentage of active users for whatever reason. And then you have to recalibrate. That commonly happens in startups. And so how does that work relative to the scorecard? I want to mention that at the top of the scorecard, we talked about you know the mission for the role, the professional trajectory, that one big thing. It's often when you're collaborating with your team member, building out the scorecard, that it's the mission that resonates the most and can inspire the most. It's sort of like, what are they the buck stops for in the company? 
And what are you depending on them for? That's a little bit bigger of a concept than just closing six deals. Now, maybe all of a sudden, we're depending on you to manage and grow relationships with X kind of deal partners in this organization. And that can open up the team member's mindset to say, hey, if it's a deal that looks like one of those six, and now instead of six deals, it's actually business development deal partners, and I'm the business development buck stops person, maybe I'll think a little bit broader than just the numbers and the KPIs. And so that's just sort of a little idea of sometimes these KPIs change quite a bit, and that's quite okay. Literally, you're trying to agree with your team member about a good path for the next 90 days, and then you can adjust the position going forward. Yeah, and this should be reevaluated every 90 days. Final kind of talking point on this document, if you look down at the bottom, there's a section called core values. The way I kind of articulate this, I think so far, Dan, is like at the top, the measurable accountabilities, these are kind of the hard skills. And at the bottom, these are kind of the soft skills. These soft skills are really important, I think, when you're hiring, especially. We talked about using this scorecard as like a hiring device. Really, really important that you have your core values written down, I think, here. So you can kind of measure people's EQ instead of like their IQ when you're evaluating them. So for us, we have values A through E. I'll just read the titles. You can write your own. So we are entrepreneurial. We are accountable. We are truth seekers. We are mindful. We are clear communicators. And I think it's good for every company to kind of have their own version of this. And these are really difficult to write. I think we wrote these like a lot. (laughs) And it's really easy to just kind of like bullshit your way through here because there's so many nice things that you can, in theory, say about yourself and your organization that may or may not be true. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. We're innovative. We're accountable. So even when I read these to myself, like I think like, well, isn't every company this? But you have to kind of figure out for yourself what is true and what isn't in here. And then you can decide how harsh you want to be too when you're hiring people based on these. Well, we said scorecard, right? And I think one of the other ways you can talk about, I like the soft skills framework. You could think about it in terms of cultural fit as well. And we said scorecard. Well, where's the scores? They're not in the KPIs. No, at the end of the quarter, you actually assign a score along with the team member. And get this, the team member assigns a score to themselves and then you compare in the meeting. You have a platform to have a conversation that needs to be had. Like, yo, let's like read the a paragraph about what this company thinks accountability is. Now, why do these two individuals disagree so widely on that? And that's really a conversation worth having. And it, it can be done respectfully. Like, you yeah. know, I don't feel like you're accountable because you take 48 hours to respond to email or whatever. And it's like, oh, I, for me, that's responsiveness. That's not accountable. Or to be accountable in your book, does that mean I got to respond in 24 hours? That's a conversation worth having. And then maybe the accountable value isn't one you want to have going forward because everybody misunderstands that or whatever. The whole point is, is that you're building out a framework for how people can think about their jobs and how to be great in your company. And I think that that's something worth doing. And the cool part is, is when you have these systems, you don't have to be there for them to grow. There can be two people in a meeting doing a review and you're not there. And these things continue to evolve and to grow. Don't feel bad if you don't have these things in place yet. You know, it's not too late. And also don't feel bad if your team is small either. If it's just like you and one or two contractors, like you said, this can be the framework for your conversations together. And it's super powerful because if you come to a meeting, like you said, Dan, and you're like, hey, I don't feel like you're accountable. It's like, 
where's this coming from? How did I even know I was supposed to be accountable? It's like, yeah. well, it's right here on the sheet. We agreed when you got hired that you're going to be some version of accountable. You've also said 25 other things to me. How did I know <laughs> that accountable was going to be one of the top five? <laughs> right. <laughs> so please take a look at this scorecard. If y'all have uh, different ideas about how you run it in your organization, we are definitely open and interested to hear about that. Final thing, and I think we'll just tease this, Dan, because I don't think we're prepared to share ours yet, but basically the scorecard leads to a scoreboard. Within our organization, we have everyone's name, and then we have their outputs or their KPIs underneath their name. And then it's in like basically this master spreadsheet. And next to the output, we basically have three colors. So it's green if they're meeting it. It's yellow if they're not meeting it, but it's recoverable, meaning that there's a path or there's a way that they can change their inputs to meet it. And then there's red if there's like no chance of meeting it and there's no way to get back on track with it. So as a company owner or as an organization, or even if you just want to see how everyone is operating in the company, you can go into this scoreboard and you can kind of look down over week basis and you can see if the majority of the company is meeting their outputs. Yeah. It's like a check engine analysis. Like you can walk into every meeting. You know, if you ever feel like, and this is back to that theme of alignment, if you ever feel like your meetings are a little arbitrary, like why is this the priority? Why are we talking about this right now? There's a hundred things happening in this company. Well, you can, before you come show up to the meeting, you can do a quick health check and you can say, well, we've got five issues right now. We've got five things that are off track. Let's talk about how to get them on track. That's a good priority for the meeting. One of the better things I think that has come out of the scoreboard for us too, Dan, is like during company meetings in the past, like we've talked about all the good things that are going on. Like what'd you do today? Or like, what were your tasks? Or like what happened? One of the rules that you could set in your organization is you only talk about the things on your scoreboard that are yellow and red, meaning that need attention. And if they're really red, like if the majority of them are red or if one of them's red, that's really important to the organization, that could be the basis for like a one-on-one meeting. Yeah. One of our values is we're truth seekers. So like, I think we have a lot of people in our company who enjoy challenges and, and enjoy like, say, if you're getting critical feedback from a client, our company, I think typically would enjoy in part the opportunity to improve, right? I mean, mm-hmm. of course it hurts a little bit to not have done a good job for a client, but it's also like, okay, what are we going to do about it? Let's come together around that. Also, most meeting agenda standards, like if you take scaling up or traction or whatever, you're going to have, like you're going to open the meeting with a lot of good news with the customer quotes, like with big wins and stuff. And then you're going to dig into issues and you're going to prioritize issues, not necessarily based on the scoreboard, but based on what the executive team has elevated as the priority issues in the company. So there's a, what do you call it? Like the, uh, Fried avocado has a lot of layers to it and keep going because it just keeps getting more delicious. All right, so that's it. I think we can put the bed scorecards for now. I just remember just a little bit of a TMBA insider lore. We reached a similar moment in our previous company where we were having alignment issues. We we're getting bigger and we started digging the systems. We brought on Sam Carpenter on the show. We read Work the System. We built a strategic opera. We, we went through a similar um, evolution as a company. It was just so cool to see how people's processes came out of that episode. And hopefully we can do a little bit of the same thing with the scorecard here. I do believe the scorecard is a little bit of a, you know, a higher order document than your average standard operating process in a business. This is identifying the locus of the process as the job itself, as the role, as the person in the company, 
as opposed to like a functional area of the company, like payment processing or customer service or whatever. So I think both are valuable. It's just an interesting, different perspective. I, I love like, uh, you know, this concept, Ian, it's called like, um, I think it's called zero-based accounting or like zero-based accountability charts. You can do that with like scorecards as well, where like, okay, it's one thing to create a scorecard for like who actually exists. It's another thing to create like the ideal scorecard, you know, like who would ideally be in this role or in that process. So it opens up a lot of possibilities for strategic thinking as well. All right, that's it for scorecards today. Next topic. How do you split equity when one partner is doing the work? We got a text from a listener. Yo, quick question for you. I feel like this might be fairly common in your community. In the case where one co-founder is doing the majority of the work, currently 90-10 split, and doing it full-time while the other co-founder is still focusing on their nine to five, how do they typically split the money? I like this one. How do you split the money? It's a question that every business partner is, is asked of all time. It's the number one concern. I think you should do it at the Tropical NBA cocktail party game at your house. This will be the number one question. How would you split the equity? So my first way that I would approach this is that assuming these are two people who have a, a relationship that's bigger than just this business, right? There are people that love to collaborate and they're looking forward to collaborating. They probably had an idea, a client, a sense of the market, and they're saying, let's be partners on this, but I can't quit my job right now. I need you to like get us to a point where we can take off. Okay. In that case, you are in a race for the 10% contributor to quit their job. And what you guys need to do is sit down and determine what the case is that Mr. 10% is going to take the same risk that you're taking. It's probably the same risk, right? Which is maybe Mr. 10% has a family, maybe has some debt. Who knows why they got to stay in their job, but you're taking on the burden of the work for this beautiful little seedling that's going to be your company. Here's the deal. If you're doing 90% of the work, you get most of the excess cash to live off of in the meantime until you meet that standard that Mr. 10% is going to jump on board. Now, keep in mind, if you sell like a $30,000 deal, that doesn't mean you dump 30 grand into your bank account. You got to treat it like a company. You want to pay yourself like a reasonable cash flowing amount so that the company's capitalized and you can continue to operate. Number two, if you're a bit more established and this isn't like a napkin thing, it's common to build a scorecard. So I'll tie it back into the top. It's called a callback. I'm calling back the scorecard and an official position for number 90. Write out what the expectations are between the two partners about what your 90% of efforts are actually doing and pay something like a market salary for their efforts. It's probably gonna be a little bit below a market salary, but then you wanna have a plan to scale into a market salary with certain revenue milestones. And then at the end of the year, you would just make distributions and dividend payments based on the equity split. So, you know, if it if there's a market for someone to run a media company at $150,000 a year, say the company's doing really, really great. Now you're making $150,000 as the 90% partner, the 90% effort partner. But if there's, you know, say $20,000 in net profit at the end of the year, you would each get $10,000 out of that. I'll stop there. I got some more thoughts on this. But essentially, to sum up my point, Ian, is I think this conversation where it really gets prickly is if 
the person doesn't want to quit their job and they want to make a lot of money off of your efforts, the real end goal ought to be to grow the enterprise itself. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And like give it a timeline too. So maybe it's like a six months or a year, something like that. But the goal has to be for everybody to be on the same page, you know, drinking from the same water hose. We basically had this situation, Dan, long time ago, like over 15 years ago, where me and you had a third partner and we felt like they weren't a main contributor at a certain point. And like this kind of stuff, it always blows up. If it's starting to boil up at the beginning of the relationship, as it seems to be in this case, like just think about what an issue it's going to be two years down the road. So number one is like try and plan on success. So develop a three or five year plan. Like our goal is to have this kind of result. And so if there's a bit of an imbalance at the beginning, I think that that's totally fine and totally normal. The deal is, and you can attest to this, Dan, there's always been inequalities in our partnership, like through the years, like it goes back and forth and back and forth. Just expect it. It's okay. It's part of being in a long-term relationship. But if there's major disparities in the way that things are getting handled and it's already starting to bubble up in the beginning, just imagine what's going to happen in the future. I'll call this like, uh, we decided to have a kid to solve our relationship problem. Like, <laughs> worst idea ever. Like, if it's not going well now, the kid isn't going to solve it for you. One of the things I thought when I saw this message, my spidey sense is like, if there's any way you can get rid of this partner, you should just do that. I think people are like super generous in the early terms with partnerships and equity because it doesn't mean much. But like you said, Ian, like that little air bubble is going to like blow up and, and blow up the whole sculpture at the end of the day. If ultimately, of course, this person's going to want free equity. Of course, they're going to want to hang around for 10% of their effort. Of course, they're going to want to keep their job. Like, what's the real point of needing a business partner at this phase? Typically, as you flesh out those first few clients, those first few cash flow months, you get a stronger sense of like what kind of partnership you're going to need, you know? And one of the things that we found, Ian, is like probably when we structured our first business we gave away too much equity for capital. And then like what happens down the line is like, there's no more capital and you paid a lot for that capital. And now you're continuing to sort of foot the bill. And it's sort of like, well, you never originate a business like that. And so how this happens a lot of times is like, if you're hanging out with your friends and you guys like come up with a business idea together, it's typical for first time founders to like basically acknowledge the fact that you were at the lunch table and like you said it was like your idea too. And so that somehow gets you equity and like someday you'll join. That can sometimes happen. Meanwhile, like fast forward to being like a founder, like a two-time, three-time founder, you're at the lunch table every freaking day and people are just dumping ideas like they're left and right. It's something we like to call the business idea paradox. And we've had a bunch of episodes about it if you want to look it up. So I do have that spidey sense when I look at things like this and I just say, does this really need to be a partnership? Like what is substantial? And so here's the final piece that I ended up sending to the listener. I said, if Mr. 10% has 50% or a meaningful percentage of equity, they typically should have secured it with capital or a large intellectual contribution and should have a clear target for when and how they'll join the company. and. This is the type of conversation that can be very prickly because now all of a sudden you're digging into that person's personal life and into their financial life, maybe even into their family life. 
And that's kind of where you need to go with this stuff because you need to know when they're going to join the company. Often, people have rose-colored glasses at the beginning and underestimate how much financial sacrifice can be involved. As an example, in our first company, I kept my job for over 12 months, but that allowed us to pay my co-founder to work full-time, two, hire an operations person, and three, put as much money back into the company as possible, showing my good faith and belief in the equity value and not just seeing it as an income booster. If they're not willing to sacrifice their job for the company, what are they willing to sacrifice? Like, are they in it to win it or are they just hanging around for the upside? I think in a 50-50 partnership, you typically need someone that you're willing to go to war with. And if they're not willing to sacrifice anything, then, well, you're just looking at things in different ways. I love this question. I love this question because it's the kind of question that someone sends it to you and you're like, wow, there's just a million ways to answer the question. So if you've got one, a question like that, an answer to this one, email it to us. Our names, Dan and Ian at tropicalmba.com. We'll read them. Do you want to mention your favorite song of the month here at the end? Well, you shared that Spoon album last week, Dan. I've really been enjoying it. I've listened to it probably five or six times. The most amazing part about that album for me is that they still sound like Spoon, which is just funny. I knew exactly what you meant when you said that. Wow, it sounds like Spoon. I'm like, I know. I know. It's amazing. (laughs) It's like like listening to like the last two Red Hot Chili Pepper albums. I'm like, oh gosh, I'm just, I'm just going back to Mother's Milk here. This is, I can't do this. Anyways, I've been really jamming out to Cody Jinks lately, man. He has an amazing uh, catalog. You and I can disagree about this on my patio. I'm sure we will Can't next wait. time I put it on. But uh, Cody Jinx is my go-to right now. Awesome, man. Thanks for joining me on this week's podcast episode. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.